again, uh, good morning to all of you, and uh, welcome again. It's a blessing to be able to share God's word with you today as we consider um, part two of this series called um, Engage. If you're a guest with us, uh, this is a time where you could take out that uh, colored insert in your service folder and fill in those blanks. Many of you are starting uh, groups this week or next week, or if you haven't been contacted yet, as far as uh, if you joined a group, uh, you will be contacted very soon um, in the next week. But um, as we get going here, a question. Uh, how many of you have either played fantasy football or at least know kind of what it is? Raise your hand if you've either played fantasy football or kind of know what it is. Okay, so, so most of you do. Well, um, I, I wanted to share some, some bad news in my life that uh, you might, um, you know, if you could cry with me about. But last week in the league that I am a part of, um, I had the absolute lowest score. I was uh, the 12th out of uh, 12 teams. And, uh, and as I, I thought about that, I, I acknowledged something, that there's a lot of reasons why that happened. Um, <laughs> but one of them, and this is just meant to make me feel better, is that I'm at a stark disadvantage from the rest of the players in fantasy football. And let me explain to you why. So oftentimes with fantasy football, um, there are players that play that, that are injured. And a lot of times you don't know whether they're going to play or not up until an hour or 30 minutes or even minutes before game time. And so when are um, most of the NFL games played? <laughs> and what am I doing on Sunday morning? I'm like kind of busy, right? And so that's my excuse. That, and it has happened more than once where I had no idea a player wasn't going to play because I'm here. And, you know, frankly, I'm just getting sick of it. So I decided that from now on, when I'm preaching, I'm going to have my iPad with me. And I'm going to have it right here, maybe a little closer. What do you think about this, Isaiah, huh? And, and that I'm going to have it on Yahoo or ESPN. And this way, I can preach and engage with you and also engage with fantasy football at the same time, and everything's going to be great. What do you think about that, huh? What if I told you that I, my wife says I'm really good at multitasking? Does that make you feel better? Or, or what if I said that even though this is here, that you guys are actually much more, imp Antonio Gates, that's the one I was waiting on. Is he playing or not? You guys are much more important to me than, than football. <laughs> of course, of course, um, you can engage with a message, with God, with you, and with fantasy football at the very same time. <laughs> and that's really the premise of this series that we started with last week, is that when you choose to engage with something, you, the Lord, you're also going to have to choose to disengage with something else, fantasy football in this case. And as you look at that video that's going to begin every week of, of this series, you see all these things that we could engage with, and many of you do engage with them. And let me just say this, none of those things are bad things. Fantasy football and iPads are not bad things, but that's not the question. The question isn't just, are we engaging with good things and things that aren't sinful? The question is more specific. The question is, 
You could engage with lots of good things, but are we engaged in our life with the best things, with the plans, the purposes, the directions of God? And so last week, as we closed up the, the message, we, we began to transition a little bit into uh, the rest of the series starting today to be about what does it mean to engage with God's plan, God's purposes uh, at church, and, and specifically at this church, but if you belong to a different church, this is really applicable to any and every church, but specifically here at Bethlehem. And when I, when I tell you, hey, um, there's going to be ways that you can better engage here at church, your first reaction likely is going to be like, I don't have time for that. Or, or my, my pocketbook, our finances don't have room for that. And it is true, they don't right now. But again, the reason why you knew I wasn't serious and Isaiah even said, that's funny, is because all of you knew I wasn't serious about this because you knew what? That church and this message and time with God is more important than fantasy football. And so one of the things we're going to have to do maybe is put our proverbial iPads away, so to speak, in our lives and disengage with some things so that we can better engage with the best things. That's my challenge for you as Christians this coming next three weeks. So specifically today, in what way can you and I either engage or better engage with the work that God has given us to do? And to get us going on that particular specific topic for the day, um, I wanted to bring up a name that if you've lived in Minnesota for any amount of time, you've probably heard of it. And the name is Jacob Wetterling, right? Most of us have heard of that name. Um, if you haven't, he was an 11-year-old boy who was abducted near his home in St. Joseph, Minnesota um, in October of 1989, so 25 years ago. And one of the reasons why his name and the Wetterling name is, is so common and so, so popular among us is, is the details of this particular event is such that they never found him. They have suspicions as to what happened, but they don't know for sure. And, and many of you have seen over the years Patty Wetterling, the mom on TV, and she is a huge advocate for, for children and, and, and for protecting children. And really what she and her husband have been doing for 25 years is searching. Searching for answers, but also in a way, because there has been no closure, for 25 years, they've been searching for their son. And I know it's slim possibility, slim to none, but maybe, just maybe, he still is alive and we just need to, to find him. And if you're a parent, you get it. I mean, imagine having your 11-year-old son just taken from you. You would search, wouldn't you? And in fact, this leads to our first fill-in-the-blank, if you're following along. It's here on the screen. Um, that the intensity of your search for something reflects how important that thing is to you. 25 years of searching. Why? Because that boy, that son, is so important to her and to her, his uh, father as well. Now, um, let me give you another example of this on the flip side. Um, 
I know we don't deal with pennies too often anymore, but has it ever happened that you've uh, had some pennies in your pocket or maybe in your hand and you were in the car and, and it, one of the pennies fell into the cracks between the, the seats of your car? Now, in, in our car, it's usually like there's just lots of food in between those cracks, and it's not my fault. I'll just say that. It, it's the kids. But, but have you ever had a penny fall in between there? And it's like impossible to get it out. And so hard that I'm guessing if you dropped a penny in there, that some of you don't even try to find it. Oh, well, it's just, it's just a penny. Now, on the flip side, what if that was a $100 bill? that came out of your pocket and you knew it fell in the cracks of your car and you couldn't find it. You would keep searching or you'd send the kids out to keep searching until that $100 bill was found. You know why? Because of this truth. The intensity of your search for something reflects how important it is to you. The amount of time, the amount of energy you spend searching for something, a $100 bill, a son, whatever it is, reflects how important it is to you that that thing is found. What's God searching for? What's at the passion or the center of the passion of his heart? What to him is worth a penny lost in the cracks of the seats of the car? And what to him is the $100 bill that he won't stop until he finds it? And as we answer that question, should our hearts and lives reflect that? And if so, what does that look like for us? These are some questions that we're going to answer as we turn to Luke chapter uh, 15. Um, Luke is a book that's all about Jesus' life. And it, it kind of surprisingly wasn't written by someone who spent a lot of time with Jesus. Um, Luke wasn't one of the 12 disciples. Um, Luke was a doctor who happened to do a lot of research on Jesus. In fact, if you read the first few verses of Luke 1, it tells you that he um, interviewed a bunch of people and then wrote a history that God guided about Jesus' life. And in chapter 15 of his letter, we read about an event that happened in Jesus' life where he answers all those questions that I just raised about the passion of his heart. We begin with verse 1. Here's the setting. The tax collectors and sinners were gathering all around to hear Jesus. Oh, if you've gone to Bethlehem for any amount of time, we've bumped into this several times. In fact, just the last time was on Vacation Bible School Sunday where we looked at Jesus with the tax collectors and the sinners. And sinners is in quotes because these were the... Uh, from society's perspective, the worst of the worst, the, the people that, you know, everyone could see their sin because it was so public and in some way so extreme, so to speak. And it's interesting that, that Jesus would spend time so often with the sinners, with another word would be the, the unchurched, the lost, the, the ones who didn't believe in God. In fact, if you look at Jesus' life through the Gospels, you see that he spent very little time with church people. I spend most of my time with church people, and I like you guys. But Jesus, on the other hand, spent very little time with church people. And so the church people, they recognized that. Verse 2, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the church people, they muttered, <laughs> 
This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Basically, the church people are asking, you know, if you're the man of God that you claim to be, why do you spend all your time with people who aren't churchy? Why do you spend all your time with the the public sinners, the the people that we don't accept as church people, as Jewish church people? Why do you care so much for tax collectors and sinners? Now, one thing I always like to make sure I'm clear on when we bump into this tension in Jesus' life is the fact that Jesus spends time so often with tax collectors and, in quotes, sinners, is not because he's okay with sin. It's not because we have a Savior who's, who's condoning of sin. Let, let's be really clear. Jesus hates sin, and he doesn't like sin in the lives of tax collectors and sinners. He doesn't like sin in the lives of church people either, okay? It wasn't a condoning of their lifestyle. He wanted them to change. So why? Why did he spend so much time with tax collectors and sinners? Well, the answer to that question Jesus answers in probably the most clear way that we have at any point in the Gospels right here. And he's going to answer it by sharing three stories. Um, One is about a lost sheep. Another one's about a lost coin. And the third one's about a lost son. But you know the third one by a different name. It's the prodigal son is the third one. Now, we don't have time to look at all three of those, so we're just going to look at at the very first one that Jesus shares to answer this question. Why do you care about the tax collectors and sinners so much? Verse 3. Might be stuck, Tracy. Thank you. Perfect. Then Jesus told them this story, this, this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country, in the pasture, and go after that one lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds the one, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders, verse 6. And he goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Let's have a party. Rejoice with me. I have found my one lost sheep. And then Jesus has his comment about the story. I tell you, Pharisees and tax collectors, I mean, tell you, Pharisees and teachers of the law, that in the same way, just like that story I just told you, there will be more rejoicing in heaven. There will be a party over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now, what is Jesus getting at here? And, and if you are a Christian already, does that last part of that verse just strike you as being a little unfair? Let's talk about that. So first, what what does Jesus mean here? Okay, Is he showing a favoritism to the lost, and does Jesus not care about those who are already his or the sheep that are already part of the flock? Well, not at all. Not at all. Let Let me explain. So sheep at that time were much like $100 bills to us today, except much more um, valuable because they provided clothing with their wool, food as sheep, and also they had a religious value because they were often used in sacrifices. And so sheep, every sheep were important. And in fact, even sometimes like how you get attached to a pet Um, you know, that shepherds often would have that extra attachment uh, to their sheep. They were very special to them. 
along with being valuable. And so if one had wandered off, the shepherd would go and would go and find it and spend all of his attention trying to regain that one lost sheep. Now, here's why. The 99, they're okay. The 99, they don't need the shepherd's immediate attention in that moment. They're safe. They're sound. The one is lost. The one is in danger. It is a really critical time for the one. Now, if this still doesn't resonate with you, let me share the same thing in a way that does, especially if you're a parent, but even if you're not, I think you can relate. And, and this, this is going to probably be a little bit of confession about me not being the greatest parent, but at the same time, I'm hoping some of you can relate because then, you know, misery loves company, so I'll feel better. But has it ever happened to you, here's the thing, has it ever happened to you that you're at a fair or at the Twins game or the zoo or a mall and it's really, really busy and you're there with your kids and you look up, has it ever happened to you that you can't see one of them? You don't know where they're at? They wandered off somewhere? Has this ever happened to any of you? Or is it just, Tom, thank you. Anyone else? Yes, good, thank you. It's all the men. Yeah, we're the ones that can't watch our kids very well. Um, and when that happens, there is this sinking feeling in the gut of your stomach because there's all these people. You don't know where your little child is, and you haven't set up a place to meet. How are you going to find them? So what do you do for the next... Hopefully it's not five minutes, but, you know, five, ten minutes, whatever it takes. You search, and your whole intention and, and your passion and your energy is, is looking for the one, Even the, and the other three are okay. You're looking for the one, knowing that the other three are already, so to speak, in the flock, Right? Now, has that ever happened? And I guess it's just the men. Has this ever happened, men, that the kid, one of the children has wandered off and you didn't get that sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach because you're like, that's all right, I got three more. <laughs> Not a problem. I mean, I got more, we can get more, everything's all right. <laughs> you would never do that, right? And it's not because the one is more important than the other three. It's because the one is in danger. The one needs your attention. Jesus' point here, don't be offended by him, Christians, is not that you're not important. The point is there is one that is lost. And the passion of Christ's heart is after finding and regaining the one who is lost. In fact, that's our, our next fill-in. Jesus, what's he passionate about? Jesus is passionate about the lost, that is, lost spiritually, that is, those who don't know Jesus as their Savior and aren't going to heaven because they don't have faith, the lost being found. That is what he is most passionate about, or at least one of the things. Now, if you're someone who isn't a Christian, and there's a few people here that I, I don't know real well. Um, if you're someone who, who's searching and you're feeling maybe a little offended that they would use the word lost for people who, who don't know Jesus yet as their Savior, I guess I just want to tell you that um, this is a title that every single one of us here have had at one time. 
In fact, um, for me, um, when I was born, I was born with a sinful nature. That is, sin that my parents gave me, inherited from them. And then I go, on, I go along and I pass it on to my kids. Because we have no other choice. All of us are born with sin. All of us are born as that sheep outside of the flock. And I am so thankful that I have a Savior who, like a shepherd, has so much passion for the lost. He's not content to say, oh, I've got others. I'm fine. (laughs) We can get more. So passionate about the lost that he came to find me. Where he found me was at a baptismal font in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, a long time ago. And when I was baptized, as the Bible says, I was given a new life and a new birth. You know what happened in heaven on that day? According to this parable, there was a party in heaven because the lost was found. And the day you became a Christian, or the day you will become a Christian, that is such a great thing that there was or will be a party in heaven for you. Jesus is so passionate about finding you and you coming to the flock that they rejoice about that together in heaven. And the passion of Jesus' heart for finding the lost isn't just seen in the fact that he comes to give us faith, but that he went all the way to the cross to pay for us and pay that that price. The, The shepherd laying down his life for the sheep taking on the wolves all by himself, the wolves of our sin and the wolves of death, and lay down his life so that the sheep might be back in the flock or in the flock for the first time. Pretty good news. So can I I ask you now, what are you passionate about? What do you take the wife out to dinner for? What do you throw parties for? And there can be many things. It's it's good to go out and celebrate uh, good grades on a report card. It's good to go out and celebrate a a new job that's going to be a blessing to the family. Those things are all good. But are we passionate as much as the Lord is? about the lost being found. Do we throw parties over that? You know, Paul was writing once about uh, what a Christian should look like. And uh, to the Ephesians here in our next verse, he writes, Ephesians 5, he says, as Christians, you should be imitators of God. What that means, it means that as much as we can, as sheep in the flock, that, that our hearts and lives should reflect God's heart. That the things he gets passionate about and throws parties for should be the things that we get most passionate about and throw parties for. But you know, just like I do, because I am no different than anyone else, that this is not the natural leanings of my life. That that the natural leaning of my heart is not to imitate God 
but the natural leaning is to do what's best for me and to celebrate the good things that happen to me more than anything else, or maybe my immediate family. But that's still me. It is hard for me because, again, back to that sinful nature, for us, it does not come naturally to celebrate good things that happen in other people's lives. It doesn't come naturally to be so passionate about the loss that we cannot stop thinking about it and that we just, you know, throw parties about it. But number three, fill in, it is definitely true that our passion for the loss, and this is where you just need to take this home and chew on it a little bit mentally and spiritually. What does this mean? You know, our passion for the lost should reflect the passion that Jesus has for the lost. You know, this is the reason why one of our seven uh, core values at Bethlehem is outward focused. It really is another way of saying passion for the lost. And what this means on a church basis, like as we plan ministry, is simply that our goal is that anytime an unchurched or de-churched person comes to Bethlehem, that they like it, that they feel welcomed. Have, have you ever been to a church um, in, your, in your life, uh, maybe you didn't belong to it, but at least visited it, where um, if you had an unchurched friend that needed to go to church, you would never invite them there. <laughs> I've been to churches like that. And, and some of the reasons are because there are certain churches that just don't acknowledge people who are there for the first time and they, they don't get any interaction with people. Or, or maybe the way that church is done doesn't make sense to them. It's over their head. The rituals or whatever it might be. I'm not saying those churches are bad. I'm not saying our church's church is better. What I am saying is our niche, in case you didn't know, our goal, our specific way that we apply this to our ministry is that we would be a place that on Sunday morning that everyone would feel welcome, whether you're here for the first time or here for the hundred and first time. That you would come to Bethlehem and whether you are part of the flock or lost, that you may not buy everything I say, so to speak, but that you would understand what we were doing and why we were doing what you were doing. And guess what? Then the Holy Spirit takes it from there. So that's what your church is about if you have partnered with Bethlehem. Here's a specific question for you. Have you joined the search? Have you joined Jesus? Your church in the search. It's one thing to have this value, outward focus. It looks nice on a card that we give to new members, right? But guess what? It is only worth the amount of effort and passion and value that the people of the church display in it. It's just words on a piece of paper. If the people, because guess what? The church is not a building, and the church is not just, you know, some higher entity. The church is you, and the church is me. And the way we engage here at Bethlehem in the work that God has given us to do 
is by speaking about Jesus. <laughs> let, me, uh, let me share this with a little illustration. Uh, we're talking about lost things today. I want you to imagine that there's a young boy who's lost in the woods. Let's say he's eight years old. And, and his father stands up in front of about 100, 150 people who have been willing to search. And he stands up before them in the woods. It's about an hour before sun goes down. And he stands by the, the big bonfire that's, that's there. And he gives them his impassioned plea. And, and he he tells the searchers that his son is about this tall, he's got brown hair, he's got green eyes, he was wearing a black sweatshirt and last seen on that trail. And all the searchers are just listening and taking it all in, and after the father is done, um, they, they spend some time talking about what they just heard. And then after that, they spend some time um, roasting some marshmallows, and then, and then everyone goes to bed, and they're still talking in their tents about what the father had said to go and search, and then they get up, and there's still murmurs about it, and they're, they're passionate about it. They're talking about it, and then they have a big breakfast, and it's scrambled eggs and, and pancakes and just wonderful breakfast, and people are still talking over breakfast. What do you think about the father said? Yeah, we need to go find him, and then some people go back to their tent, and they take out books about searching, and they start reading about the best ways to search for lost boys, but no one's searching. If you were the father, if you were the mother in that situation, what would you feel? How would you feel? I wonder if that's sometimes how God feels when he looks down at us. Because we're good, and I'm throwing myself in this boat, because I have a much easier time talking to you about Jesus than I do the lost, okay? I do it more. But we, we talk about it, we read about it, we read books about it. But are we doing it? Have we engaged? Have we engaged in the search our last fill-in-the-blank is this simple application. I'm being very, very specific today on the application. I think we all agree that our passion, or the passion of our heart, should be the same as God's. Here's how you can engage, by inviting someone to church. In fact, I am actually going to help you with this. On your way out today, the ushers are going to be handing each of you, and you can have as many as you want, a Your Invited Business card, okay? And basically, it just says you're invited and then has the details about our services. I'm getting even more specific. My goal for you is in the next three weeks that you would invite someone to come to church. Some of you have never done that before. It's about time been Christians all our lives, never invited anyone to church. Some of you have done it before. That's awesome. That means you're a pro and just do it again. We all have been given this calling. to. Sp we believe, therefore we need to speak. And one other tip, you know, have you ever had friends that um, you wanted to get together with and, and the, the motto is, you know, this happens all the time, right? We should get together sometime. Does that ever happen? Not if we say it that way, right? We have to say, all right, on this date at 5 o'clock, we're going to meet and we're going to grill out or whatever it is, right? If we just say, hey, um, you should come to our church sometime, you need to be more specific. 
I'm going to be there on September, whatever. I'm going to the 11 o'clock service. I'll meet you outside the doors, and we'll sit together. Be specific. The Lord will bless your work. We need to do that work. The Lord will bless it as we pray about it. You know, everything that we do here on earth or here at Bethlehem is going to be better in heaven. The sermons are going to be better. I know you can't believe it, but the music is going to be better. But there's one thing that we can't do there that we can only do here. Search. May God help us to engage in that way. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for the, the great reminder of how your love for us as the shepherd showed itself in the fact that you went after us, redeemed us, and brought us back to the fold whenever that might have been for, for us individually. Dear Lord, as we consider the, the gratitude we have, um, we ask you to inspire in us a willingness and a confidence to invite someone else to come hear about you. And, and Lord, um, we ask you to, to guide the work of the, the church so that when they come, they might, they might hear and, and also believe or, or get connected. And so, Lord, help us to put away any excuses that we might have. We are all part of the church, and may we all do with inspired vigor the work you've given us to do. We pray this in uh, your son's name and also pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. At this time, our 